This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Well, creativity is separate from imagination, too. Um, so, we, you know, it's important to keep in mind that imagination is the generation of something in your head and creativity is the generation of something that is um, novel and useful in some kind of way. But you can have very creative acts that are low imagination, like improvisational acts of creativity, where actually having a lot of it in your head gets in the way because you can't respond very quickly to... Um, and then you have acts of very high imagination in creativity, like Mozart supposedly or symphonies in his head without writing anything down. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus, and I want you for one moment just to imagine that you're flying. What can you see? How high up are you? Can you feel the rush of wind blowing in your face? Keep these thoughts in mind for a while. We'll come back to them in a bit. Your imagination is a strange old thing with some people experience vivid senses while some struggle to picture anything at all. In this episode of the Science Focus podcast, I speak to cognitive scientist Jim Davies, whose book Imagination, The Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power, sheds light on this mysterious function of the brain. As you can imagine, we go deep into the neuroscience of conjuring up mental images, but we also find out why your memory doesn't need to be perfect, the joys of playing video games after a bad day, the benefits of imaginary friends, and, rather bizarrely, how to make a better door. Imagination is the generation of some kind of a structure in your head, and it comes from memory. So that's the very broad definition. Um, and unfortunately, it includes a lot of things that we don't typically think of as imagination, like dreaming and hallucinations and stuff. Um, but uh, we can't really define it any better than that without um, uh, destroying it. Uh, so, you know, the, the classic idea is when you um, might imagine the bedroom you grew up in or something like that, you're bringing um, an image or something like an image to your attention and you're reconstructing something from memory. And that's, uh, that's, that's a very broad idea of what imagination is. So if we're constructing something from uh, memory, sort of how accurate is that, that construction that we're making? Uh, well, I think in general it's, it's pretty accurate, but um, I think it's important to realize that it's kind of an assumption of psychologists that the function of memory is to produce veridical and true reconstructions of what actually happened. But there is a movement that suggests that the function of memory is merely to help us behave better in the future. And when you look at it that way, it's not, it's usually, but not always necessary to get it absolutely right. And in fact, whenever we generate something in imagination, we are reconstructing it from bits of information that we stored in memory, but these can be distorted. Um, and every time you recall it, it changes it slightly. Uh, so it's not completely accurate, and there are some very um, dramatic cases where uh, those inaccuracies 
are gross and and cause some real problems in the world. Uh, but for the most part, they're fairly accurate. Because <laughs> I, I I sort of think that when I'm thinking back to something from the past. Uh, uh, I know I'm liable to make mistakes, yet there are some things that are... Com- I, I feel like I've got a photographic memory of it, but that might not be completely the case in any way, shape or form. Is there? It, 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 at what point is our memory and our imagination, like, are they both the same thing or do they deviate in a way? Well, every time you um, imagine a hypothetical situation, like something that might have happened to you but didn't, or, or a future situation, the um, you're going to remember the act of imagining it, right? So you might imagine that you could fly. And then if I ask you 10 minutes later to reflect on that time when you imagined it, you're going to pull that from memory. The difference is that usually you're going to know when you recall it later that it was something you imagined before and it wasn't something that actually happened to you. And this can, but this, this is mainly because you know that you can't fly and you might remember the act of imagination. But unfortunately, sometimes the vivid imagination of things gets stored in your memory and later uh, you can't distinguish it from something that actually happened. So I have a false memory, for example, of riding a tricycle down the steps in my uh, childhood home. And I actually did ride my tricycle down the steps, but I'm remembering it in the wrong house because the story was told over and over in my family and I would imagine it every time it was told. So I imagine it happening in the house that I can remember, not in the house it actually happened in. But I, it feels no different from a what we might say is a true memory, even though it's got a substantially um, manufactured aspect to it. And does that ha- happen often with these? Because um, I, I, you know, I've got memories that I know are false memories, and, and that's happening in there. And right. is there a reason why that we would have? you know, why our brains would be able to hold on to this false memory as opposed to going, actually, that's not right. There's a there's a true memory that you should remember instead. That's a, that's a good question. I don't know if there's a function of false memory per se. Um, it might just be an artifact of the nature of memory in general that um, it's absolutely necessary to remember your imaginings. So if you make a plan to how to do something, some goal in your life or whatever it could be, as, as complex as a career change or as simple as, you know, who's going to pick up the kids from daycare. You, if you can't remember that plan, then it's useless, right? <laughs> so it gets stored in memory. Unfortunately, the tagging system for whether something is just hypothetical is not uh, perfect. It's th- that tag. Is it an imagination? Is it a plan? Is it something that happened to me? Is also a memory that can be forgotten or, or um, mis, uh, misattributed with something else. So I don't think it's um, useful particularly to have false memories, but it seems to be a natural outcome of the way that our memory system works. And does our memory system, so obviously, you, you, you know, you mentioned things like tagging and that sort of stuff. That sounds very much like, um, uh, sounds like a lot of the work I do, like running the website or that sort of thing. When I'm thinking of like, here's a here's an article and it's tagged this way and that. Is that something that our brain does with, with memories in general? Yes. And um, so what happened, there's a big uh, literature out there in psychology on what's called source monitoring, which is how you know where the things in your memory came from. So we all have the experience of knowing something, but not knowing where we heard it. Okay. So you might know that whales are mammals, but you can't remember the episode where you learned that you probably can't bring to mind some scientific citation that proves it. It's just something that, you know, um, and, and when it comes to distinguishing false memories from imagined situations, we use things like vividness 
and the realism and reasoning to make an inference about whether it actually happened or not. We have to look at the memory and make a decision. But after we've done that, so I, I mentioned a minute ago, imagining that you could fly, right? If any, if any of your listeners imagine that, they can probably recall that, but they know that uh, it is just an act of imagination. And if I ask them to recall it tomorrow, they don't have to refigure it out that it was just imagination. It's been tagged as, oh yeah, I imagined that when it showed up on the podcast. So this this tag is similar to the tags you have like, oh, I heard this from Bobby, or I read it in the latest Harari book or something like that. So we not only have memories, but we have justificational memories that give us a clue as to where it came from. And then these memories, there's a, like again, you, you mentioned with the sort of flying uh, memory, obviously none of us can fly, but when we do imagine something, we, you know, we can imagine quite vividly uh, what it would be like and what it would be like to fly and, and, and what we'd be doing, what we'd be seeing. How is our, you know, how is our brain pulling all these different things together to say this is, this is what you would imagine flying is like? Well, the, uh, this points to something very important, which is that we think about imagined situations using the same reasoning processes that we would if we were um, thinking about a real situation. So if I were to ask you to, for example, to imagine if you could fly like Peter Pan or something, mm -hmm. and you could commute to work that way, let's say you emerge from your front door, you fly up in the air and go straight to work over the buildings, you can imagine what buildings you might pass over, what they might look like. And that is using the same kind of reasoning that you would use if I were to ask you about a bird. If I said a bird were to make that route, what buildings would they fly over? What would it look like to the bird? And that's a perfectly realistic imagination. But the, the point is, is that you're using the same reasoning processes in both cases. And this means a couple, means a couple of important things. One is that the, the, the contents of your imagination like the fact, like the so-called fact that you are flying, this, you know, how fast you'd be going, all that, is written in your mind in the same code as things you actually believe. And this is part of why we can falsely remember things is because the, uh, the imaginary uh, facts, as it were, the, the, the suppositions that you make when you're engaging in imagination are subject, are made of the same stuff and subject to the same kind of reasoning. So that's how you're able to do it. So is there is there does that mean that there is like very much similarities between you imagining something and you believing something or are are they actually quite different? They're similar in that they're what we say in cognitive psychology and cognitive science is that they're made of this they're encoded in the same way they're in the same code, and so that's why you can uh, falsely remember things. Uh, people will mm, see something in a movie and think that it's a real business or something like i remember uh, some movie came out in the 90s where they there was a company called we sell your stuff on ebay and i and i remember talking to people who said oh yeah there's a company we sell your stuff on ebay and i'm like no no that's from a film but they 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 don't remember they they, they lose the attribution of it so at that point i think it's probably a good good thing to to, to sort of ask what um so what you know when are you imagine something in your in and it appears in your head um oftentimes you know it appears as a picture is that is that normal does everyone think of a, a picture when they imagine something or are there other things going on 
So what you're talking about is uh, mental imagery, and that's different from imagination. So let's talk a little bit about the difference first, then I'll talk about how people differ in that. Mm -hmm. If I, uh, some things you can imagine without any pictures or sounds or anything like that. So imagining like um, being married or not being married or uh, owning owning something or not owning something. These are um, make-believe facts as it were but they don't really look like anything like being married doesn't particularly look like anything you can be married and be far away from your spouse or whatever you're not even close by um so that that's like the kind of imagination you can make without any sort of sensory experience now sometimes people imagine things and they have a very vivid sensory experience so they might um you know if i say something like uh you know dropping dropping a um a jar of mayonnaise onto a cat. Okay. So some, some people might like have a very vivid image of what that might be like, what the cat would do. Uh, and it seems a little bit like you're seeing it. Okay. So this is what it's like for mental imagery. Also, if you get like a song stuck in your head, okay, mm -hmm. that's auditory imagery. It's still called imagery, even though it's not a picture, but it's a sensory like, uh, representation in imagination. And it is, it is the final and optional step of imagination. So sometimes you can have somebody imagine a situation, then you say, now picture it. And it feels different in their head for some people. That, that Now that I'm picturing it, there are more details added or this or that. Uh, in terms of differences, some people have extraordinarily vivid imagery and some people have none at all. So some people, when you ask them to imagine or uh, picture like a beach scene or something like that, they do not get an image in their head that is anything like seeing a beach. Mm -hmm. And they don't even really understand what that would be like, okay? And other people have extraordinarily vivid imagery, so much that it can interfere with their perception. They're called hyperphantasic, right? So we've known for a very long time that there are differences in vividness, um, and now we're starting to explore like some of the ramifications of people who have a lot of or very little mental imagery. So that must be quite a difficult thing to to, to study in a way. How do you how do you study whether people are, are able to imagine something or and or the different levels that, that they're able to imagine something? Oh, we just ask them. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, there th that's the simple way to do it, and it's not bad, right? We just you can just ask people, do you have pictures? You know, when you Im uh, imagine your house, is it like having a picture in your head? And some people, and they'll just tell you, yes, it's very vivid, or no, I don't get one at all. I, I ask people, one exercise I use to help people uh, kind of know what this is like is I, I ask them to, wherever they are, to picture like a woman standing in front of them like in a red dress or something. And then while your eyes are facing forward and you don't change your point of view in your imagination, the woman walks behind you so that she's now behind your head. And for most people, when she gets beyond your visual field, the character changes. The color is no longer there. You just sort of know that a woman is behind you, but it's not like you can see her behind you. And for people who don't have mental imagery, that's what everything's like. It's more like a fact, like you know that the person is there, you know what the color is, but you don't actually uh, have an experience that's anything like seeing it. So they'll have fantasies that are so extensive and so engaging that they will constantly be zoning out of conversations, they'll be canceling social plans so that they can lie in bed and just imagine. Uh, and there are other people who are who feel that they have very low amounts of imagination and don't engage in it very often and have complete control. So there, there are a couple of ways that it can differ between people. Is that something that you can, you can sort of train yourself to do? So if you, you know, if you do have some, what people would describe as an overactive imagination or something like that, would you, is there anything you could do to sort of rein it in or, or contrary wise, 
if you don't feel that you're imaginative enough, uh, something you can do to boost that? So there, you can enhance your imagination in particular domains with practice. Mm-hmm. However, um, it does not seem to affect your general ability to imagine. So if you if you get trained in architecture or geology, these are fields and even chemistry. These are fields that um, it behooves you a lot to be able to think three-dimensionally about different uh, situations. And you will get better over time at imagining those things. But uh, a geologist isn't going to be better at imagining architecture, and an architect isn't going to be better at imagining geology as a result of their training. So So it seems to be pretty Mm domain-specific. And then when you get to imagery and vividness, for example, like I would love to have a more vivid mental imagery. Um, And the data on that are very interesting and very contradictory. So on the one hand, uh, there are religious practices where they have people uh, vividly image like Jesus or something like that. And over time, they start to experience hallucinations some of which are interpreted as actually being Jesus, right? But um, it seems to be that, with, like with practice, uh, they can actually generate really vivid imagery. But on the other hand, all of the very careful scientific studies I've seen uh, when I was researching my book, I, I had to like I was really trying because I really <laughs> wanted to make my imagery better. <laughs> so I was trying to find studies that show. But every careful study seems to show that there's no effect. Uh, your imagery vividness declines over time and there doesn't seem to be much you can do about it is that just as you get older you just have this um yeah this this... yeah peaks around age 25 and then (laughs) starts to diminish after that is that why perhaps like we you know when we consider we we look back at things and we think that oh we were more you know creative or imaginative in our youth uh like you know we look back longingly at our teens going i wrote some terrible music but i really thought it was quite good and out there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, creativity is separate from imagination too. Um, so we, you know, it's important to keep in mind that imagination is the generation of something in your head, and creativity is the generation of something that is um, novel and useful in some kind of way. But you can have very creative acts that are low imagination, like improvisational acts of creativity, where actually having a lot of <clears throat> um, structures generated in your head gets in the way because you can't respond very quickly to the environment, right? Um, and then you have acts of very high imagination in creativity, like Mozart supposedly composing entire symphonies in his head without writing anything down. Um, Kanye West claims that for his first several albums, he never wrote down a single lyric. He just he just had all the words in his mind, right? So these are creative acts that involve imagination, right? But uh, I think that there's a really persistent myth that kids are super creative that Mm -hmm. I want to dispel. (laughs) (laughs) Feel free. Kids are unblocked. Kids are unblocked. That's what's great about kids. So when you see them come up with something, you're like, my God, that, you know, I would never have thought of that. Like they don't have a lot of um, restrictions that adults do about what's possible. And so their imaginations are very free. But you'll notice that all of the wonderful works of imagination out there, none of them came from kids. <laughs> like <laughs> you can't point to like a movie franchise or even a book series or anything, um, scientific discoveries that were generated by the immense imagination of a child. So is that something that we can do if we just let our minds sort of be open to more 
uh, outlandish imaginations, we might be able to sort of uh, harness that a bit better. Well, re- relaxing constraints is one strategy for being more creative, right? So you might think like, oh, if I wanted to make a better door, like what are some of the constraints on a door that we take for granted that we might question? Does it have to have hinges? Does it have to have a handle? Does it have to be made of solid material? You can question those things. And most of them, you have to understand that most of them are going to lead to dead ends. Part of being competent in the world is understanding that the world actually does have constraints. And that's how you're able to make useful things. And if you start asking, like, how do I make a door that's made out of liquid water? It might not go anywhere. Um, So it might be a waste of time. So there's a trade-off between the potential usefulness of something and the what we call divergent thinking involved with creative acts. So I think it's good to have a balance of it and to have, um, you know, to let loose on constraints sometimes. But if you like ignore all constraints, uh, you'll never come up with anything useful. And so do children do that? You know, as, as they grow older, do they, do they sort of take in the world around them and start constraining their imagination? Yeah, exactly. Right. That, and that's why they're, they're, um, they're, idea like people's ideas as they get older become maybe less divergent and surprising but actually more useful (laughs) (laughs) um on the on the 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 theme of children and and their own imagination obviously there's you know lots of children have imaginary friends now is that is that something that's a a, a normal thing to happen or a normal thing to have or is that you know a deviation of um uh uh, your imagination at that point it's it's normal in two ways it's normal in the sense that many 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 children have them and it's also normal in the sense that it's not anything to worry about. So uh, imaginary companions, the best we can tell, are uh, at worst harmless and at best helpful. Okay. So how, how do they become helpful? Well, the, the function of them seems to be company. Uh, children will have an imaginary friend to have a playmate. It's like an imaginary playmate. And it's similar to like when you play with a doll or a toy or something that you sort of talk to and give personality to, but it's just uh, not embodied in any kind of physical object. There's, I mean, people don't really worry about like a kid playing with a doll Mm. and like caring for it, talking to it. People don't think that's weird, but for some reason, if the imagined entity is not visible to the parents, sometimes people think that's a little strange, but it's really no different. You'll find that um, children will sometimes create imaginary companions when they have a younger sibling. Okay. Uh, and they don't get as much time with their parents or they will play with an imaginary companion when they're alone. But often that imaginary companion will vanish when <clears throat> when they have playmates, like real human playmates. Right. Mm. Um, now, sometimes imaginary companions can be generated in response to something bad happening. So neglected children are more likely to have them. But in those cases, it's it's helping the kid. Right. It, it, like the kid has an imaginary companion in that case because there's something wrong. But the imaginary companion is more like the bandage and less like the wound, right? So they are self-soothing and helping themselves by um, playing with the imaginary companion. And does that, you know, does that, you, you mentioned there that, you know, some children have it because, you know, something bad has happened and they use their imaginary friend to sort of, uh, as, as a way of dealing with it. Is, can our imagination be, also be helpful in that sort of situation for, you know, throughout life, dealing with traumas or, or that, that sort of thing? Oh God! Well, I mean, w- with trauma, most of the stories, the imagination is is, a, is gets in your way. So many people who have been traumatized can't stop imagining this, the trauma, right? So um, 
Freud had a very popular idea that memory, that um, uh, traumatic events can be repressed, but uh, there's very little evidence that that ever happens. People who are traumatized, usually their problem is they can't stop thinking about the trauma. Um, people with PTSD, people who've been assaulted, um, <clears throat> they want to be able to stop their imaginations. Now, can the imagination help? Well, sometimes with the aid of a therapist, you can use your imagination to kind of reframe the situation into something more meaningful in terms of your life story. And, to, and so you can sort of reframe it in a positive way to help you interpret it a little bit better. But generally, uh, imagining and recalling bad things that have happened to you um, can make it worse. I guess on, on the other side of that as well, also imagining things that are positive can can improve things. Yeah, yeah. You can put a positive spin on things and uh, change the memory. And one of the nice things about the fact that every time you recall a memory, you change it, is that you can change it so that it's uh, helping you with your goals instead of hurting you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there are interesting studies that show that if you have a traumatic experience, let's say a cop has, a, you know, just had a really bad night dealing with some terrible things. Uh, if they like vividly imagine it over and over again and talk about it over and over again, what they can do is they can reinforce the memory as a traumatic event. Uh, and then they will suffer more in the long run rather than not thinking about it. In fact, there's a study that shows that if you play Tetris right after something bad happens, you'll remember the event less and less emotionally because really? you're, cr you're crowding your, your memory with um, vivid imagery from a video game. And before, um, and it inhibits your mind's ability to turn the short-term memory of the traumatic event into long-term memories. So sometimes if I like have a really bad day or get into a fight with somebody or whatever, I will play video games to lessen the effect of uh, the, I, I will, to save my future self emotional distress. <laughs> so a good excuse to, 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 to curl up with a controller and just, uh, just get lost in the, in uh, the world of online gaming or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is there a time of day or something like that that we tend to imagine more, or is there a, there are moments where it's just it's more active than other times? I wouldn't say time of day affects it as much as <clears throat> your imagination is more active when you are doing something routine or boring. So there's a part of your brain called the default mode network that gets activated when you don't need all of your attentional capacities to do what you're doing. So if you're folding laundry or taking a walk, um, you know, these kind of things that do not require, like compared to like playing squash or something, right? Or, you know, um, your mind can focus on other things. That's called, and it goes into the default mode. And the default mode, uh, people tend to think about their future plans, um, their, their longer term values. It helps, it seems to have some function in helping you refocus on uh, what's important in your life and that kind of thing. And, you know, that very often happens when you're lying in bed at night, right? So you don't have distractions. The lights are off. Your, your, uh, perceptual system doesn't have much to take in. And, and some people will, um, do a lot of imagining in bed before they go to sleep. Now that can be a problem if they're stressed and they have anxieties that can keep them awake and they can't stop their mind from thinking of these things. So it's not always a good thing. Uh, but it also, you know, some people will think about what they're going to do the next day or, oh, geez, I really should read that book uh, or I really should talk to that friend who's having a hard time. So, um, you know, it's a double edged sword. It can it, it helps you refocus on future priorities, but also you can get into. 
spirals of anxiety. Does, uh, you know, at that point where if you're lying in bed and you're, you're th- thinking about something and imagining and concentrating hard on it, um, in that situation, I'd normally just fall asleep. <laughs> Standard. Well, then you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the the downside of that is I am really like quite. I, I have very like vivid and strong dreams. Now, like, are those dreams my mind imagining things, or is there a different process going on there? Uh, so dreams are like imagination in that they are drawn from memory. Um. Uh, as some hallucinations are, <clears throat> but it has a couple differences. One is that there's less executive control. What I mean by that is your frontal lobe and your the part of your brain that is involved with conscious deliberative processing is very active when you're doing uh, daydreaming or um, in, uh, engaging in imagination while you're awake and much less active while you're dreaming. Uh, and this might explain why we don't have insight uh, which is another big difference between dreaming and imagination is that usually when we are imagining, we know that we're imagining and the things that we are experiencing uh, perceptually are just results of imagination and they're from our memories rather than from the real world. When we're dreaming, almost all the time, uh, we are unaware of that and we take what we see at face value. And that might be a result of the frontal areas and the executive areas of your brain being deactivated. Um, it also might be a design feature. So one of the big theories of why we dream is that it's practice for future situations. It's a safe way to plan what you would do if something bad were to happen. And most, in defense of this theory, most dreams are negative in terms of feelings. They're anxiety dreams or fear dreams or discomfort dreams or something like that. And, um, you know, if you didn't believe it while it was happening, you might not act appropriately right so if you are facing um, a person chasing you what you should do is run and hide or fight or something like that but if you don't believe that there's actually a person chasing you you know it's a dream you're not going to react realistically and that means that it's less valuable as practice so it's important to realize that evolution doesn't care one whit about how happy we are (laughs) all it cares about to the extent that it cares about anything it's all metaphorical of course but you know is that we reproduce so if if evolution can uh, something can arise in evolution that makes us miserable but get, makes us have more children, it will happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's a sobering thought, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is. You can't. Yeah, and that's you know, ev- evolution is not there for your best interests. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I guess that's. <laughs> I guess that's why when um when we're having uh, a dream, you know, whatever's happening, it feels very real as compared to something which is like if I'm just daydreaming as it were I'm just if i'm just imagining and thinking about something but and dreams feel a lot more like you know there's a lot more sensory stuff going on there yeah that's i mean this is one theory of dreaming there are there are dream researchers who know a lot more about it than me who um say that dreams don't mean anything at all and they're just a function of um they're just there dreams are just there because of other things that your brain needs and there's no real reason that we dream it just sort of happens but uh, <laughs> according to the theory of the usefulness of dreams that I just outlined, that it's practice. Yeah, that would be an explanation for why we believe them while we have them. Um, now, now, during that, you you mentioned like parts of the brain that were were, were switched off or weren't you know activated while you were, were dreaming. When you imagine something, is is that something that's happening all across your brain, or is there specific regions that are actually causing these these the imaginations to happen? Uh, it's it's most of the brain. Um, when you're engaged in imagery. Uh, the parts of the kind of imagery you have will affect different 
parts of your brain. So, and this is pretty obvious, but if you're engaging in uh, vivid visual imagery, your visual areas will be more active. And if you're imagining like the sound of your mother's voice or, you know, uh, a, a culture club song, then your auditory um, areas will be more activated, but uh, generally uses a lot. I mean, memory uses most of your brain. So when you're engaging in memory retrieval and all imagination involves memory retrieval, we end up seeing a lot of your brain. I guess that's why if, uh, if I'm thinking of something from memory, that the sort of sensory um, uh, feedback is a lot greater than if I'm just imagining something that that's not necessarily a memory. Oh, I no, I don't really distinguish them because when, when you just imagine a generic smell of coffee, like if I, if I ask you to imagine the smell of coffee tomorrow morning, you're not recall. I mean, you have to rely on memories to generate anything. Hmm. So you are using the memories of what coffee has smelled like in the past to um, come up with what it will smell like in the future. So I don't see a big difference between memory recall and imagination in that way, because every time you imagine you have to engage in memory recall, it just might not be a specific instance of it. Right. Hmm. Just out of curiosity, when you imagine the smell of coffee, do you get a vivid um, smell image of it? Like, can you, is it sort of like smelling coffee when you imagine it? Uh, not, not hugely, but a lot more, um, you know, part of my, part of my, uh, me thinking about a cup of coffee, the smell is quite an integral part of it. Like it's not just a, a mug of hot liquid. There's a, a distinct characteristic smell that comes with coffee. And so that yeah. sort of feels like that's being activated a lot more than if I were to think of maybe a, a glass of orange squash, which has got a lot less smell associated with it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. But you know, for me, um, when I imagine like a woman in front of me wearing a red dress, that is much more like seeing a woman in a red dress than imagining the smell of coffee is like smelling coffee. Mm. So what that means is that, and this is the common for most people, their olfactory imagery or their smell imagery is much less vivid. Mm. So what I know what the smell, I know what cinnamon smells like, but I can't really imagine the smell of cinnamon so well that it, it, it's almost like I'm smelling it. And, uh, but some people, they have very uh, vivid olfactory imagery. So that's an interesting thing. And another weird thing is that, even though most people have very weak olfactory imagery, that smell imagery, smell hallucinations are fairly common. So that's a that's a strange unknown. <laughs> so what, would a uh, smell hallucination be? You 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 feel like you can smell something, but there's, there's no there's nothing there to give that smell. There, yeah, there's nothing in the environment that's actually making that uh, <laughs> sensation happen. I wonder why that would be happening. Well. Um, there are like eight, the eight, eight ways that hallucinations can happen. <laughs> that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast. You can, um, get olfactory hallucination or hallucinations of many kinds, um, by just randomly activating certain parts of the brain and not others. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Are there some other, is it, you know, is there a reason why would the subject of like, you know, a smell memory as it were, or a smell imagination, are there some senses that are easier to imagine things, you know, for instance, why is it so much easier to imagine something visually than it would be olfactorily? I don't, that's not a real word, but. <laughs> yeah, I think it might be a word actually. <laughs> um, well, we're visual creatures, right? So the, 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 the dominant sense in human beings is vision. And then uh, we have audition and touch and those kind of things so when you get down to things like um taste and uh taste and smell um i mean that that's not a great explanation but it's the only one i think we have that was jim davies 
whose book, Imagination, The Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power, is out now. If you can imagine yourself listening to more of our podcasts, then subscribe wherever you listen and get them as soon as they come out. We've moved from a Thursday to a Monday, so you can start your week off with a little bit of mind-expanding science. Also, please give us a rating or review wherever you listen, and you can picture our smiling faces. There's more brain science in the February issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, where we try to get to the bottom of what our consciousness really is. There is, of course, loads more inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.